B is for Bigfoot. Takes place between full moon and grave peril. When people come to the only professional wizard in the Chicago phone book for help, they're one of two things, desperate or smart. Very rarely are they both. The smart ones come to me because they know I can help. The desperate ones because they don't know anyone else who can. With a smart client, the meeting is brief and pleasant. Someone has lost the engagement ring that was a family heirloom and has been told I'm a man who can find lost things. Such people engage my services, preferably in cash. I do the job, and everyone's happy. Desperate clients, on the other hand, can pull all sorts of ridiculous nonsense. They lie to me about what kind of trouble they've gotten themselves into, or try to pass me a check I'm sure will bounce like a basketball. Occasionally, they demand that I prove my powers by telling them what their problem is before they even shake my hand, in which case the problem is that they're idiots. My newest client wanted something different, though. He wanted me to meet him in the woods. This did not make me feel optimistic that he would be one of the smart ones. Woods being in short supply in Chicago, I had to drive all the way up to the northern half of Wisconsin to get to decent timber. That took me about six hours, given that my car, while valiant and bold, is also a Volkswagen Beetle, made around the same time flower children were big. By the time I got there and had hiked a mile or two out into the woods to the appointed location, dark was coming on. I'm not a moron, usually. I've made enemies during my stint as a professional wizard, so when I settled down to wait for the client, I did so with my staff in one hand, my blasting rod in the other, and a thirty-eight revolver in the pocket of my black leather duster. I blew out a small crater in the earth with an effort of will, using my staff to direct the energy, and built a modest campfire in it. Then I stepped out of the light of the campfire, found a comfortable, shadowy spot, and waited to see who was going to show up. The whole P.I. gig is mostly about patience. You have to talk to a lot of people who don't know anything to find the one who does. You have to sit around waiting a lot, watching for someone to do something before you catch them doing it. You have to do a lot of searching through useless information to get to one piece of really good information. Impatient P.I.s rarely conclude an investigation successfully and never remain in the business for long. So, when an hour went by without anything happening, I wasn't too worried. By two hours, though, my legs were cramping, and I had a little bit of a headache, and apparently the mosquitoes had decided to hold a convention about ten feet away, because I was covered with bites. Given that I hadn't been paid a dime yet, this client was getting annoying fast. The fire had died down to almost nothing, so... I almost didn't see the creature emerge from the forest and crouch down beside the embers. The thing was huge. I mean, just saying that it was nine feet tall wasn't enough. It was mostly human-shaped, but it was built more heavily than any human, covered in layers and layers of ropey muscle that were visible even through a layer of long, dark brown hair or fur that covered its whole body. It had a brow ridge like a mountain crag, with dark, glittering eyes that reflected the red-orange light of the fire. I did not move, not even a little. If that thing wanted to hurt me, 
I would have one hell of a time stopping it from doing so, even with magic. And unless I got lucky, something with that much mass would find my thirty-eight about as deadly as a pricing gun. Then it turned its head and part of its upper body toward me and said, in a rich, mellifluous Native American accent, You done over there? Don't mean to be rude, and I didn't want to interrupt you, wizard, but there's business to be done. My jaw dropped open. I mean, it literally dropped open. I stood up slowly, and my muscles twitched and ached. It's hard to stretch out a cramp when you remain in a stance, prepared to run away at an instant's notice, but I tried. You're, I said, you're a... Bigfoot, he said. Sasquatch. Yowie. Yeti. Bunch of names. Yep. And you... you called me? I felt a little stunned. Uh, did you use a payphone? I instantly imagined him trying to punch little phone buttons with those huge fingers. Of course he hadn't done that. Nah, he said, and waved a huge hairy arm to the north. Fellas at the reservation help us make calls sometimes. They're a good bunch. I shook myself and took a deep breath. For Pete's sake, I was a wizard. I dealt with the supernatural all the time. I shouldn't be this rattled by one little unexpected encounter. I shoved my nerves and my discomfort down and replaced them with iron professionalism, or at least a semblance of calm. I emerged from my hidey hole and went over to the fire. I settled down across from the Bigfoot, noting as I did that I was uncomfortably close to being within reach of his long arms. Um, uh, welcome. I'm Harry Dresden. The Bigfoot nodded and looked at me expectantly. After a moment of that, he said, as if prompting a child, This is your fire. I blinked. Honoring the obligations of hospitality is a huge factor in the supernatural communities around the world. And as it was my campfire, I was the de facto host, and the Bigfoot my guest. I said, Yes, I'll be right back. I hurried back to my car and came back to the campfire with two cans of warm Coke and a half a tin of salt and vinegar Pringles chips. I opened both cans and offered the Bigfoot one of them. Then I opened the Pringles and divided them into two stacks, offering him his choice of either. The Bigfoot accepted them and sipped almost delicately at the Coke handling the comparatively tiny can with far more grace than I would have believed. The chips didn't get the careful treatment. He popped them all into his mouth and chomped down on them enthusiastically. I emulated him. I got a lot of crumbs on the front of my coat. The Bigfoot nodded at me. Hey, got any smokes? No, I said. Sorry, it's not a habit. Maybe next time, he said. Now, you have given me your name, but I have not given you mine. I am called Strength of a River in His Shoulders of the Three Stars Forest People, and there is a problem with my son. What kind of problem? I asked. His mother can tell you in greater detail than I can, River Shoulders said. 
His mother, I rubbernecked, is she around? No, he said. She lives in Chicago. I blinked. His mother, human, River Shoulder said. The heart wants what the heart wants, yeah? Then I got it. Oh, he's a scion. That made more sense. A lot of supernatural folk can and do interbreed with humanity. The resulting children, half-mortal, half-supernatural, are called scions. Being a scion means different things to different children, depending on their parentage, but they rarely have an easy time of it in life. River Shoulders nodded. Forgive my ignorance of the issues. Your society is not one of my areas of expertise. I know, right? A Bigfoot saying expertise. I shook my head a little. If you can't tell me anything, why did you call me here? You could have told me all of this on the phone. Because I wanted you to know that I thought the problem supernatural in origin, and that I would have good reason to recognize it. And because I brought your retainer. He rummaged in a buckskin pouch that he wore slung across the front of his body. It had been all but invisible amid his thick pelt. He reached a hand in and tossed something at me. I caught it on reflex and nearly yelped as it hit my hand. It was the size of a golf ball and extraordinarily heavy. I held it closer to the fire and then whistled in surprise. Gold. I was holding a nugget of pure gold. It must have been worth, uh, well, a lot. We knew all the good spots a long time before the Europeans came across the sea, River Shoulders said calmly. There's another, just as large, when the work is done. What if I don't take your case? I asked him. He shrugged. I try to find someone else. But word is that you can be trusted. I would prefer you. I regarded River Shoulders for a moment. He wasn't trying to intimidate me. It was a mark in his favor, because it wouldn't have been difficult. In fact, I realized he was going out of his way to avoid that very thing. He's your son, I asked. Why don't you help him? He gestured at himself and smiled slightly. Maybe I would stand out a little in Chicago. I snorted and nodded. Maybe you would. So, wizard, River Shoulders asked, will you help my son? I pocketed the gold nugget and said, One of these is enough, and yes, I will. The next day I went to see the boy's mother at a coffee shop on the north side of town. Dr. Helena Pounder was an impressive woman. She stood maybe six four and looked as though she might be able to bench press more than I could. She wasn't really pretty, but her square, open face looked honest and her eyes were a sparkling shade of springtime green. When I came in, she rose to greet me and shook my hand. Her hands were an odd mix of soft skin and calluses. Whatever she did for a living, she did it with tools in her hand. River told me he'd hired you, Dr. Pounder said. She gestured for me to sit, and we did. Yeah, I said, he's a persuasive guy. Pounder let out a rueful chuckle, and her eyes gleamed. I suppose he is. Look, I said, I don't want to get too personal, but... But how did I hook up with a Bigfoot? 
she asked. I shrugged and tried to look pleasant. I was at a dig site in Ontario. I'm an archaeologist, and I stayed a little too long in the autumn. The snows caught me there, a series of storms that lasted for more than a month. No one could get in to rescue me, and I couldn't even call out on the radio to let them know I was still at the site. She shook her head. I fell sick and had no food. I might have died if someone hadn't started leaving rabbits and fish in the night. I smiled. River shoulders? She nodded. I started watching every night. One night, the storm cleared up at just the right moment, and I saw him there. She shrugged. We started talking. Things sort of went from there. So the two of you aren't actually married, or why does that matter? She asked. I spread my hands in an apologetic gesture. He paid me, you didn't. It might have an effect on my decision process. Honest enough, aren't you? Pounder said. She eyed me for a moment and then nodded in something like approval. We aren't married, but suitors aren't exactly knocking down my door, and I never saw much use for a husband anyway. River and I are comfortable with things as they are. Good for you, I said. Tell me about your son. She reached into a messenger bag that hung on the back of her diner chair and passed me a five-by-seven photograph of a kid, maybe eight or nine years old. He wasn't pretty, either, but his features had a kind of juvenile appeal, and his grin was as real and warm as sunlight. His name is Irwin, Pounder said, smiling down at the picture. My angel. Even... Tough, bouncer-looking supermoms have a soft spot for their kids, I guess. I nodded. What seems to be the problem? Earlier this year, she said, he started coming home with injuries. Nothing serious, abrasions and bruises and scratches. But I suspect that the injuries were likely worse before the boy came home. Irwin heals very rapidly, and he's never been sick. Literally never, not a day in his life. You think someone is abusing him, I said. What did he say about it? He made excuses, Pounder said. They were obviously fictions. But that boy is at least as stubborn as his father, and he wouldn't tell me where or how he'd been hurt. Ah, uh, I said. She frowned. Ah? Uh, it's another kid. Pounder blinked. How... I have the advantage over you and your husband inasmuch as I have actually been a grade school boy before, I said. If he snitches about it to the teachers or to you, he'll probably have to deal with retributive friction from his classmates. He won't be cool. He'll be a snitching, tattling pariah. Pounder sat back in her chair, frowning. I'm hardly a master of social skills. I hadn't thought of it that way. I shrugged. On the other hand, you clearly aren't the sort to sit around wringing your hands, either. Pounder snorted and gave me a brief, real smile. So, I went on, when he started coming home hurt, what did you do about it? I started escorting him to school and picking him up the moment class let out. That's been for the past two months. He hasn't had any more injuries. But I have to go to a conference tomorrow morning and... You want someone to keep an eye on him. That, yes, she said. But I also want you to find out who has been trying to hurt him.
I arched an eyebrow. How am I supposed to do that? I used River's financial advisor to pull some strings. You're expected to arrive at the school tomorrow morning to begin work as the school janitor. I blinked. Wait, Bigfoot has a financial advisor? Who, like Nessie? Don't be a child, she said. The human tribes assist the forest people by providing an interface. Rivers folk give financial, medical, and educational aid in return. It works. My imagination provided me with an image of River Shoulders standing in front of a children's music class, his huge fingers waving a baton that had been reduced to a matchstick by his enormity. Sometimes my head is like an etch-a-sketch. I shook it a little, and the image went away. Right, I said. It might be difficult to get you something actionable. Pounder's eyes almost seemed to turn a green-tinged shade of gold, and her voice became quiet and hard. I am not interested in courts, she said. I only care about my son. Yikes. Bigfoot Irwin had himself one formidable mama bear. If it turned out that I was right and he was having issues with another child, that could cause problems. People can overreact to things when their kids get involved. I might have to be careful with how much truth got doled out to Dr. Pounder. Nothing's ever simple, is it? The school was called the Madison Academy, and it was a private elementary and middle school on the north side of town. Whatever strings River Shoulders had pulled, they were good ones. I ambled in the next morning and went to the administrative office and was greeted with the enthusiasm of a cloister of diabetics meeting their insulin delivery truck. Their sanitation engineer had abruptly departed for a Hawaiian vacation, and they needed a temporary replacement. So I wound up wearing a pair of coveralls that were too short in the arms, too short in the legs, and too short in the crotch, with the name Norm stenciled on the left breast. I was shown to my office, which was a closet with a tiny desk and several shelves stacked with cleaning supplies of the usual sort. It could have been worse. The stencil could have read Freddy. So I started engineering sanitation. One kid threw up, and another started a paint fight with his friend in the art room. The office paged me on an old intercom system that ran throughout the halls and had an outlet in the closet when they needed something in particular. But by ten, I was clear of the child-created havoc and dealing with the standard human havoc, emptying trash cans, sweeping floors and halls, and generally cleaning up. As I did, going from classroom to classroom to take care of any full trash cans, I kept an eye out for Bigfoot Irwin. I spotted him by lunchtime, and I took my meal at a table set aside for faculty and staff in one corner of the cafeteria as the kids ate. Bigfoot Irwin was one of the tallest boys in sight, and he hadn't even hit puberty yet. He was all skin and bones, and I recognized something else about him at once. He was a loner. He didn't look like an unpleasant kid or anything, but he carried himself in a fashion that suggested that he was apart from the other children. Not aloof, simply separate. His expression was distracted, 
and his mind was clearly a million miles away. He had a double-sized lunch and a paperback book crowding his tray, and he headed for one end of a lunch table. He sat down, opened the book with one hand, and started eating with the other, reading as he went. The trouble seemed obvious. A group of five or six boys occupied the other end of his lunch table, and they leaned their heads closer together and started muttering to one another and casting covert glances at Irwin. I winced. I knew where this was going. I'd seen it before, when it had been me with the book and the lunch tray. Two of the boys stood up, and they looked enough alike to make me think that they either had been born very close together or else were fraternal twins. They both had messy, sandy brown hair, long, narrow faces, and pointed chins. They looked like they might have been a year or two ahead of Irwin, though they were both shorter than the lanky boy. They split, moving down either side of the table toward Irwin, their footsteps silent. I hunched my shoulders and watched them out of the corner of my eye. Whatever they were up to, it wouldn't be lethal, not right here in front of half the school, and it might be possible to learn something about the pair by watching them in action. They moved together, though not perfectly in sync. It reminded me of a movie I'd seen in high school about juvenile lions learning to hunt together. One of the kids wearing a black baseball cap leaned over the table and casually swatted the book out of Irwin's hands. Irwin started and turned toward him, lifting his hands into a vague, confused-looking defensive posture. As he did, the second kid, in a red sweatshirt, casually drove a finger down onto the edge of Irwin's dining tray. It flipped up, spilling food and drink all over Irwin. A bowl broke, silverware rattled, and the whole tray clattered down. Irwin sat there looking stunned while the two bullies cruised right on by, as casual as can be. They were already fifteen feet away when the other children in the dining hall had zeroed in on the sound and reacted to the mess with a round of applause and catcalls. Pounder! snarled a voice, and I looked up to see a man in a white visor, sweatpants, and a t-shirt come marching in from the hallway outside the cafeteria. Pounder, what is this mess? Irwin blinked owlishly at the barrel-chested man and shook his head. I... He glanced after the two retreating bullies and then around the cafeteria. I guess... I accidentally knocked my tray over, Coach Pete. Coach Pete scowled and folded his arms. If this was the first time this had happened, I wouldn't think anything of it. But how many times has your tray ended up on the floor, Pounder? Irwin looked down. This would be five, sir. Yes, it would, said Coach Pete. He picked up the paperback Irwin had been reading. If your head wasn't in these trashy science fiction books all the time, maybe you'd be able to feed yourself without making a mess. Yes, sir, Irwin said. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Coach Pete said, looking at the book. That's stupid. You can't hitchhike onto a spaceship. No, sir, Irwin said. Detention, Coach Pete said. Report to me after school. Yes, sir. Coach Pete slapped the paper back against his leg, scowled at Irwin, and then abruptly looked up at me. What? he demanded. I was just wondering, you don't by any chance have a Vogan in your family tree? 
Coach Pete eyed me, his chest swelling in what an anthropologist might call a threat display. It might have been impressive if I hadn't been talking to River Shoulders the night before. That a joke? That depends on how much poetry you write, I said. At this, Coach Pete looked confused. He clearly didn't like feeling that way, which seemed a shame, since I suspected he spent a lot of time doing it. Irwin's eyes widened, and he darted a quick look at me. His mouth twitched, but the kid kept himself from smiling or laughing, which was fairly impressive in a boy his age. Coach Pete glowered at me, pointed a finger as if it might have been a gun, and said, You, tend to your own business. I held up both hands in a gesture of mild acceptance. I rolled my eyes as soon as Coach Pete turned his back, drawing another quiver of restraint from Irwin. Pick this up, Coach Pete said to Irwin, and gestured at the spilled lunch on the floor. Then he turned and stomped away, taking Irwin's paperback with him. The two kids, who had been giving Irwin grief, made their way back to their original seats, meanwhile, and were at the far end of the table, looking smug. I pushed my lunch away and got up from the table. I went over to Irwin's side and knelt down to help him clean up his mess. I picked up the tray, slid it to a point between us, and said, Just stack it up here. Irwin gave me a quick, shy glance from beneath his must hair and started plucking up fallen bits of lunch. His hands were almost comically large compared to the rest of him, but his fingers were quick and dexterous. After a few seconds, he asked, You've read The Hitchhiker's Guide? Forty-two times, I said. He smiled and then ducked his head again. No one else here likes it. Well, it's not for everyone, is it? I asked. Personally, I've always wondered if Adams might not be a frontman for a particularly talented dolphin, which I think would make the book loads funnier. Irwin let out a quick bark of laughter and then hunched his shoulders and kept cleaning up. His shoulders shook. Those two boys give you trouble a lot, I asked. Irwin's hands stopped moving for a second. Then he started up again. What do you mean? I mean, I've been you before, I said. The kid who liked reading books about aliens and goblins and knights and explorers at lunch and in class and during recess. I didn't care much about sports, and I got picked on a lot. They don't pick on me, Irwin said quickly. It's just, just what guys do. They give me a hard time. It's in fun. And it doesn't make you angry, I said. Not even a little. His hands slowed down, and his face turned thoughtful. Sometimes, he said quietly, when they spoil my broccoli. I blinked. Broccoli? I love broccoli, Irwin said, looking up at me, his expression serious. Kid, I said, smiling, no one loves broccoli. No one even likes broccoli. All the grown-ups just agree to lie about it so we can make kids eat it, in vengeance for what our parents did to us. Well, I love broccoli, Irwin said, his jaw set. Huh, I said, guess I've seen something new today. We finished, and I said, go get some more lunch. I'll take care of this. Thank you, he said soberly. Uh, Norm. I grunted, nodded to him, tossed the dropped food, and returned the tray. 
Then I sat down at the corner table with my lunch and watched Irwin and his tormentors from the corner of my eye. The two bullies never took their eyes off Irwin, even while talking and joking with their group. I recognized that behavior, though I'd never seen it in a child before, only in hunting cats, vampires, and sundry monsters. The two kids were predators. Young and inexperienced, maybe, but predators. For the first time, I thought that Bigfoot Irwin might be in real trouble. I went back to my own tray and wolfed down the food on it. I wanted to keep a closer eye on Irwin. Being a wizard is all about being prepared. Well, that and magic, obviously. While I could do a few things in a hurry, most magic takes long moments or hours to arrange, and that means you have to know what's coming. I'd brought a few things with me, but I needed more information before I could act decisively on the kid's behalf. I kept track of Irwin before he left the cafeteria. It wasn't hard. His face was down, his eyes on his book, and even though he was one of the younger kids in the school, he stood out, tall and gangly. I contrived to go past his classroom several times in the next hour. It was Trig, which I knew, except I'd been doing it in high school. Irwin was the youngest kid in the class. He was also evidently the smartest. He never looked up from his book. Several times the teacher tried to catch him out, asking him questions. Irwin put his finger on the place in his book, glanced up at the blackboard, and answered them with barely a pause. I found myself grinning. Next, I tracked down Irwin's tormentors. They weren't hard to find either, since they both sat in the chairs closest to the exit, as though they couldn't wait to go off and be delinquent the instant school was out. They sat in class with impatient, sullen expressions. They looked like they were in the grip of agonizing boredom, but they didn't seem to be preparing to murder a teacher or anything. I had a hunch that something about Irwin was drawing a predatory reaction from those two kids, and Coach Vogan had arrived on the scene pretty damned quickly. Too much so for coincidence, maybe. Maybe Bigfoot Irwin isn't the only scion at this school, I muttered to myself. And maybe I wasn't the only one looking out for the interests of a child born with one foot in this world and one in another. I was standing outside the gymnasium as the last class of the day let out, leaning against the wall on my elbows, my feet crossed at the heels, my head hanging down, my wheeled bucket and mop standing unused a good seven feet away, pretty much the picture of an industrious janitor. The kids went hurrying by in a rowdy herd, with Irwin's tormentors being the last to leave the gym. I felt their eyes on me as they went past, but I didn't react to them. Coach Vogan came out last, flicking out the banks of fluorescent lights as he went, his footsteps brisk and heavy. He came to a dead stop as he came out of the door and found me waiting for him. There was a long moment of silence while he sized me up. I let him. I wasn't looking for a fight, and I had taken the deliberately relaxed and non-confrontational stance I was in to convey that concept to him. I figured he was connected to the supernatural world, but I didn't know how connected he might be. Hell, I didn't even know if he was human. Yet. 
Don't you have work to do? he demanded. Doing it, I said. I mean, obviously. I couldn't actually hear his eyes narrow, but I was pretty sure they did. You got a lot of nerve, buddy, talking to an instructor like that. If there weren't all these kids around, I might have said another syllable or two, I drawled. Coach Vogan. You're about to lose your job, buddy. Get to work, or I'll report you for malingering. Malingering, I said. Four whole syllables. You're good. He rolled another step toward me and jabbed a finger into my chest. Buddy, you're about to buy a whole lot of trouble. Who do you think you are? Harry Dresden, I said. Wizard. And I looked at him as I opened my sight. A wizard's sight is an extra sense, one that allows him to perceive the patterns of energy and magic that suffuse the universe, energy that includes every conceivable form of magic. It doesn't actually open a third eye in your forehead or anything, but the brain translates the perceptions into the visual spectrum. In the circles I run in, the sight shows you things as they truly are, cutting through every known form of veiling magic, illusion, and other mystic chicanery. In this case, it showed me that the thing standing in front of me wasn't human. Beneath its illusion, the spindly, humanoid creature stood a little more than five feet high, and it might have weighed a hundred pounds soaking wet. It was naked, and anatomically it resembled a Ken doll. Its skin was a dark gray, its eyes absolutely huge, bulbous, and midnight black. It had a rounded, high-crowned head and long, delicately pointed ears. I could still see the illusion of Coach Pete around the creature, a vague and hazy outline. It lowered the lids of its bulbous eyes, the gesture somehow exceptionally lazy, and then nodded slowly. It inclined its head the smallest measurable amount possible and murmured in a melodious and surprisingly deep voice, Wizard. I blinked a few times and waved my sight away so that I was facing Coach Pete again. We should talk, I said. The apparent man stared at me unblinkingly, his expression as blank as a discarded puppet's. It was probably my imagination that made his eyes look suddenly darker. Regarding? Erwin Pounder, I said. I would prefer to avoid a conflict with Svartalfheim. He inhaled and exhaled slowly through his nose. You recognized me. In fact, I'd been making an educated guess, but the Svartalf didn't need to know that. I knew precious little about the creatures. They were extremely gifted craftsmen and were responsible for creating most of the really cool artifacts of Norse myth. They weren't wicked, exactly, but they were ruthless, proud, stubborn, and greedy, which often added up to similar results. They were known to be sticklers for keeping their word, and God help you if you broke yours to them. Most important, they were a small, supernatural nation unto themselves one that protected its citizens with maniacal zeal. I had a good teacher, I said. I want your boys to lay off Erwin Pounder. Point of order, he said. They are not mine. I am not their progenitor. 
I am a guardian only. Be that as it may, I said. My concern is for Irwin, not the brothers. He is a whetstone, he said. They sharpen their instincts upon him. He is good for them. They aren't good for him, I said. Fix it. It is not my place to interfere with them, Coach Pete said. Only to offer indirect guidance and to protect them from anyone who would interfere with their growth. The last phrase was as emotionless as the first, but it somehow carried an ugly ring of a threat. A polite threat, but a threat nonetheless. Sometimes I react badly to being threatened. I might have glared a little. Hypothetically, I said, let's suppose that I saw those boys giving Irwin a hard time again, and I made it my business to stop them. What would you do? Slay you, Coach Pete said. His tone was utterly absent of any doubt. Awfully sure of yourself, aren't you? He spoke as if reciting a single-digit arithmetic problem. You are young. I am not. I felt my jaw clench and forced myself to take a slow breath to stay calm. They're hurting him. Be that as it may, he said calmly. My concern is for the brothers, not for Irwin Pounder. I ground my teeth and wished I could pick my words out of them before continuing the conversation. We've both stated our positions, I said. How do we resolve the conflict? That is also not my concern, he said. I will not dissuade the brothers. I will slay you, should you attempt to do so yourself. There is nothing else to discuss. He shivered a little, and suddenly the illusion of Coach Pete seemed to gain a measure of life, of definition, like an empty glove abruptly filled by the flesh of a hand. If you will excuse me, he said in Coach Pete's annoying tone of voice, walking past me, I have a detention over which to preside. To preside over, I said, and snorted at his back. Over which to preside? No one actually talks like that. He turned his head and gave me a flat-eyed look, then he rounded a corner and was gone. I rubbed at the spot on my forehead between my eyebrows and tried to think. I had a bad feeling that fighting this guy was going to be a losing proposition. In my experience, when someone gets their kids a supernatural super nanny, they don't pick pushovers. Among wizards, I'm pretty buff, but the world is full of bigger fish than me. More to the point, even if I fought the Svarthoff and won, it might drag the White Council of Wizards into a violent clash with Svarthofheim. I wouldn't want to have something like that on my conscience. I wanted to protect the Pounder Kid, but I wasn't going to back away from that. But how was I supposed to protect him from the Bully Brothers if they had a heavyweight on deck ready to charge in swinging? That kind of brawl could spill over onto any nearby kids and fast. I didn't want this to turn into a slugfest. That wouldn't help Erwin Pounder. But what could I do? What options did I have? How could I act without dragging the Svartolf into a confrontation? I couldn't. Ah, I said to no one, lifting a finger in the air. Aha! 
I grabbed my mop bucket and hurried toward the cafeteria. The school emptied out fast, making the same transition every school does every day, changing from a place full of life and energy, of movement and noise, into a series of echoing chambers and empty halls. Teachers and staff seemed as eager to be gone as the students. Good. It was still possible that things would get ugly, and if they did, the fewer people around the better. By the time I went by the janitor's closet to pick up the few tools I had brought with me and went to the cafeteria, my bucket's squeaking wheels were the loudest sound I could hear. I turned the corner at almost exactly the same time as the bully brothers appeared from the opposite end of the hall. They drew up short, and I could feel the weight of their eyes as they assessed me. I ignored them and went on inside. Bigfoot Irwin was already inside the cafeteria, seated at a table, writing on a piece of paper. I recognized the kid's rigid, resigned posture, and it made my wrist ache just to see it. Coach Pete had him writing a sentence repetitively, probably something about being more careful with his lunch tray, the monster. Coach Pete stood leaning against the wall, reading a sports magazine of some sort. Or at least that's what he appeared to be doing. I had to wonder how much genuine interest a Svarthalf might have in the NBA. His eyes flicked up as I entered. I saw them go flat. I set my mop and bucket aside and started sweeping the floors with a large dust broom. My janitorial form was perfect. I saw Coach Pete's jaw clench a couple of times, then he walked over to me. What are you doing? he asked. Sweeping the floor, I replied, guileless as a newborn. This is not a matter for levity, he said. No amount of it will save your life. You grossly underestimate the power of laughter, I said. But if there's some kind of violent altercation between students, any janitor in the world would find it his honor-bound duty to report it to the administration. Coach Pete made a growling sound. Go ahead, I said. Let your kids loose on him. I saw how they behaved in their classrooms. They're problem cases. Irwin's obviously a brilliant student and a good kid. When the administration finds out the three of them were involved in a fight, what do you think happens to the troublemaker twins? This is a private school. Out they go. Irwin is protected. And I won't have to lift a finger to interfere. Coach Pete rolled up the magazine and tapped it against his leg a couple of times. Then he relaxed, and a small smile appeared upon his lips. You are correct, of course, except for one thing. Yeah, what's that? They will not be exiled. Their parents donate more funds to the school than any ten other families, and a great deal more than Irwin's mother could ever afford. He gave me a very small, very Gallic shrug. This is a private school. The boy's parents paid for the cafeteria within which we stand. I found myself gritting my teeth. First of all, you have got to get over this fetish for grammatically correct prepositions. It makes you sound like a prissy twit. And second of all, money isn't everything. Money is power, he replied. Power isn't everything. No, 
he said, and his smile became smug. It is the only thing. I looked back out into the hallway through the open glass wall separating it from the cafeteria. The Bully Brothers were standing in the hall, staring at Irwin the way hungry lions stare at gazelles. Coach Pete nodded pleasantly to me and returned to his original place by the wall, unrolling his magazine and opening it again. Damn it, I whispered. The Svarthoff might well be right. At an upper-class institution such as this, money and politics would have a ridiculous amount of influence. Whether aristocracies were hereditary or economic, they'd been successfully buying their children out of trouble for centuries. The Bully Brothers might well come out of this squeaky clean, and they'd be able to continue to persecute Bigfoot Irwin. Maybe this would turn out to be a slugfest after all. I swept my way over to Irwin's table and came to a stop. Then I sat down across from him. He looked up from his page of scrawled sentences, and his face was pale. He wouldn't meet my eyes. How you doing, kid? I asked him. When I spoke, he actually flinched a little. Fine, he mumbled. Hell's bells, he was afraid of me. Irwin, I said, keeping my voice gentle. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. Okay, he said, without relaxing a bit. They've been doing this for a while now, haven't they? I asked him. Um, he said. The bully brothers, the ones staring at you right now. Irwin shivered and glanced aside without actually turning his head toward the window. It's not a big deal. It kind of is, I said. They've been giving you grief for a long time, haven't they? Only lately it's been getting worse. They've been scarier, more violent, bothering you more and more often. He said nothing, but something in his lack of reaction told me that I'd hit the nail on the head. I sighed. Erwin, my name is Harry Dresden. Your father sent me to help you. That made his eyes snap up to me, and his mouth opened. My, my dad? Yeah, I said. He can't be here to help you, so he asked me to do it for him. My dad, Irwin said, and I heard the ache in his voice, so poignant that my own chest tightened in empathy. I'd never known my mother, and my father died before I started going to school. I knew what it was like to have holes in my life in the shape of people who should have been there. His eyes flicked toward the Bully Brothers again, though he didn't turn his head. Sometimes, he said quietly, if I ignore them, they go away. He stared down at his paper. My dad? I mean, I never... You met him? Yeah. His voice was very small. Is... is he nice? Seems to be, I said gently. And he knows about me? Yeah, I said. He wants to be here for you, but he can't. Why not? Irwin asked. It's complicated. Irwin nodded and looked down. Every Christmas there's a present from him, but I think maybe Mom is just writing his name on the tag. Maybe not, I said quietly. He sent me, and I'm way more expensive than a present. 
Irwin frowned at that and said, What are you going to do? That isn't the question you should be asking, I said. What is, then? I put my elbows on the table and leaned toward him. The question, Irwin, is what are you going to do? Get beat up, probably, he said. You can't keep hoping they'll just go away, kid, I said. There are people out there who enjoy hurting and scaring others. They're going to keep doing it until you make them stop. I'm not going to fight anyone, Irwin all but whispered. I'm not going to hurt anyone. I... I can't. And besides, if they're picking on me, they're not picking on anyone else. I leaned back and took a deep breath, studying his hunched shoulders, his bowed head. The kid was frightened. The kind of fear that is planted and nurtured and which grows over the course of months and years. But there was also a kind of gentle, immovable resolve in the boy's skinny body. He wasn't afraid of facing the bully brothers. He just dreaded going through the pain that the encounter would bring. Courage, like fear, comes in multiple varieties. Damn, I said quietly. You got some heart, kiddo. Can you stay with me? He asked. If, if you're here, maybe they'll leave me alone. Today, I said quietly. What about tomorrow? I don't know, he said. Are you going away? Can't stay here forever, I replied. Sooner or later, you're going to be on your own. I won't fight, he said. A droplet of water fell from his bowed head to smear part of a sentence on his paper. I won't be like them. Irwin, I said, look at me. He lifted his eyes. They were full. He was blinking to keep more tears from falling. Fighting isn't always a bad thing. That's not what the school says. I smiled briefly. The school has liability to worry about. I only have to worry about you. He frowned, his expression intent and pensive. When isn't it a bad thing? When you're protecting yourself or someone else from harm, I said. When someone wants to hurt you or someone who can't defend themselves. And when the rightful authority can't or won't protect you. But you have to hurt people to win a fight, and that isn't right. No, I said, it isn't but sometimes it is necessary. It isn't necessary right now, he said. I'll be fine. It'll hurt, but I'll be fine. Maybe you will, I said. But what about when they're done with you? What happens when they decide it was so much fun to hurt you, they go pick on someone else too? Do you think they'll do that? Yes, I said. That's how bullies work. They keep hurting people until someone makes them stop. He fiddled with the pencil in his fingers. I don't like fighting. I don't even like playing street fighter. This isn't really about fighting, I said. It's about communication. He frowned. Huh? They're doing something wrong, I said. You need to communicate with them. Tell them that what they're doing isn't acceptable and that they need to stop doing it. I've said that, he said. I tried that a long time ago. It didn't work. You talked to them, I said. It didn't get through. You need to find another way to get your message through. You have to show them. 
You mean hurt them? Not necessarily, I said quietly. But guys like those two jokers only respect strength. If you show them that you have it, they'll get the idea. Irwin frowned harder. No one ever talked to me about it like that before. I guess not, I said. Um, I'm scared of doing that. Who wouldn't be, I asked him. But the only way to beat your fears is to face them. If you don't, they're going to keep on doing this to you. And then others. And someday, someone is going to get hurt bad. It might even be those two jackasses who get hurt. If someone doesn't make them realize that they can't go through life acting like that. They aren't really bad guys, Irwin said slowly. I mean, to anyone but me. They're okay to other people. Then I'd say that you'd be helping them as well as yourself, Irwin. He nodded slowly and took a deep breath. I'll, uh, I'll think about it. Good, I said. Thinking for yourself is the most valuable skill you'll ever learn. Thank you, Harry, he said. I rose and picked up my broom. You bet. I went back to sweeping one end of the cafeteria. Coach Pete stood at the other end. Irwin returned to his writing, and the Bully Brothers came in. They approached as before, moving between the tables, splitting up to come at Irwin from two sides. They ignored me and Coach Pete, closing in on Irwin with impatient eagerness. Irwin's pencil stopped scratching when they were both about five feet away from him, and without looking up, he said in a sharp, firm voice, Stop! They did. I could see the face of only one of them, but the bully was blinking in surprise. This is not cool, Irwin said, and I'm not going to let you do it anymore. The brothers eyed him, traded rather feral smiles, and then each of them lunged at Irwin and grabbed an arm. They hauled him back with surprising speed and power, slamming his back onto the floor. One of them started slapping at his eyes and face, while the other produced a short length of heavy rubber tubing, jerked Irwin's shirt up, and started hitting him on the stomach with a hose. I gritted my teeth and reached for the handle of my mop, except it wasn't a mop that was poking up out of the bucket. It was my staff, a six-foot length of oak as thick as my circled thumb and forefinger. If this was how the Bully Brothers started the beating, I didn't even want to think about what they'd do for a finale. Svarthoff or not, I couldn't allow things to go any further before I stepped in. Coach Pete's dark eyes glittered at me from behind his sports magazine, and he crooked a couple of fingers on one hand in a way that no human being could have. I don't know what kind of magical energy the Svarthoff was using, but he was good with it. There was a sharp crackling sound, and the water in the mop bucket froze solid in an instant, trapping my staff in place. My heart sped up. That kind of magical control was a bad, bad sign. It meant that the Svarthoff was better than me. Probably a lot better. He hadn't used a focus of any kind to help him out, the way my staff would help me focus and control my own power. If we'd been fighting with swords, that move would have been the same as him clipping off the tips of my eyelashes without drawing blood. This guy would kill me if I fought him.
I set my jaw, grabbed the staff in both hands, and sent a surge of my will and power rushing down its rune-carved length into the entrapping ice. I muttered, Forzari, as I twisted the staff, and pure energy lashed out into the ice, pulverizing it into chunks the size of gravel. Coach Pete leaned forward slightly, eager, and I saw his eyes gleam. Svarthalves were old school, and their culture had been born in the time of the Vikings. They thought mortal combat was at least as fun as it was scary, and their idea of mercy only embraced killing you quickly as opposed to killing you slowly. If I started up with this Svarthalf, it wouldn't be over until one of us was dead, probably me. I was afraid. The sound of the rubber hose hitting Irwin's stomach and... The harsh breathing of the struggling children echoed in the large room. I took a deep breath, grabbed my staff in two hands, and began drawing in my will once more. And then Bigfoot Irwin roared, I said no! The kid twisted his shoulders in an abrupt motion and tossed one of the brothers away as if he weighed no more than a soccer ball. The bully flew ten feet before his butt hit the ground. The second brother was still staring in shock when Bigfoot Irwin sat up, grabbed him by the front of his shirt, and rose. He lifted the second brother's feet off the floor and simply held him there, scowling furiously up at him. The bully brothers had inherited their predatory instinct from their supernatural parent. Bigfoot Irwin had gotten something else. The second brother stared down at the younger boy and struggled to wriggle free, his face pale and frantic. Irwin didn't let him go. Hey, look at me, Irwin snarled. This is not okay. You were mean to me. You kept hurting me for no reason. That's over. Now. I'm not going to let you do it anymore, okay? The first brother sat up shakily from the floor and stared agog at his former victim, now holding his brother effortlessly off the floor. Did you hear me? Irwin asked, giving the kid a little shake. I heard his teeth clack together. Y yeah, stammered the dangling brother, nodding emphatically. I hear you. I hear you. We hear you. Irwin scowled for a moment and he gave the second brother a push before releasing him. The bully fell to the floor three feet away and scrambled quickly back from Irwin. The pair of them started a slow retreat. I mean it, Irwin said. What you've been doing isn't cool. We'll figure out something else for you to do for fun, okay? The bully brothers mumbled something vaguely affirmative and then hurried out of the cafeteria. Bigfoot Irwin watched them go. Then he looked down at his hands, turning them over and back as if he'd never seen them before. I kept my grip on my staff and looked down the length of the cafeteria at Coach Pete. I arched an eyebrow at him. It seems like the boys sorted this out on their own. Coach Pete lowered his magazine slowly. The air was thick with tension, and the silence was its hard surface. Then the Swarthoff said, Your sentences, Mr. Pounder. Yes, sir, Coach Pete, Irwin said. He turned back to the table and sat down, 
and his pencil started scratching at the paper again. Coach Pete nodded at him, then came over to me. He stood facing me for a moment, his expression blank. I didn't intervene, I said. I didn't try to dissuade your boys from following their natures. Irwin did that. The Svartov pursed his lips thoughtfully and then nodded slowly. Technically accurate. And yet you still had a hand in what just happened. Why should I not extract retribution for your interference? Because I just helped your boys. In what way? Irwin and I taught them caution, that some praise too much for them to handle, and we didn't even hurt them to make it happen. Coach Pete considered that for a moment and then gave me a faint smile. A lesson best learned early rather than late. He turned and started to walk away. Hey, I said in a sharp, firm voice. He paused. You took the kid's book today, I said. Please return it. Irwin's pencil scratched along the page, suddenly loud. Coach Pete turned, then he pulled the paperback in question out of his pocket and flicked it through the air. I caught it in one hand, which probably made me look a lot more cool and collected than I felt at the time. Coach Pete inclined his head to me a little more deeply than before. Wizard. I mirrored the gesture. Svarthalf? He left the cafeteria, shaking his head. What sounded suspiciously like a chuckle bubbled in his wake. I waited until Irwin was done with his sentences, and then I walked him to the front of the building, where his maternal grandmother was waiting to pick him up. Was that okay? he asked me. I mean, did I do right? Asking me if I thought you did right isn't the question, I said. Irwin suddenly smiled at me. Do I think I did right? He nodded slowly. I think... I think I do. How's it feel? I asked him. It feels good. I feel... not happy. Satisfied. Whole. That's how it's supposed to feel, I said. Whenever you've got a choice, do good, kiddo. It isn't always fun or easy, but in the long run... It makes your life better. He nodded, frowning thoughtfully. I'll remember. Cool, I said. He offered me his hand very seriously, and I shook it. He had a strong grip for a kid. Thank you, Harry. C could... Could I ask you a favor? Sure. If you see my dad again, could you tell him... Could you tell him I did good? Of course, I said. I think what you did will make him very proud. That all but made the kid glow. And, and tell him that, that I'd like to meet him, you know, someday. Will do, I said quietly. Bigfoot Irwin nodded at me. Then he turned and made his gangly way over to the waiting car and slid into it. I stood and watched until the car was out of sight. Then I rolled my bucket of ice back into the school so that I could go home.